Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, we have Beth Matinere, and I'm very happy you're going to have a chance to hear her story. A couple of other guests on the show have talked about similar issues with being sent to teen treatment programs. And I, again, hate to use the word treatment in these programs. It should be teen traumatizing programs where there was so much abuse and so much that was put into play without any oversight, without any safety measures, emotional or physical. And there's so much post-traumatic stress that comes from these experiences. And the reason it's important to talk about these is because they still exist. They still exist in large numbers. There are many that are actually run by people within the same family uh, who don't have a background in mental health or working with adolescents, young adults, and some of whom are downright sadists who just enjoy the power. And like most kind of cultic groups and dangerous situations, they get away with it by staying under the radar. And one of the reasons that I put this show together originally a few years ago was to shine a light on different programs and different things, different groups, different people who have been able to remain in the shadows and then are able to still get away with their abuse and their neglect and their endangerment of others. So Beth also has become a licensed professional so that she can help people who have been through trauma themselves, which is really a wonderful turn of events for her. Here's a bit about her before you get to hear from her. She writes, As an adolescent, I was sent to a program heavily modeled after the Synanon cult. This self-help style school used attack therapy, loss of personal agency, physical labor, and isolation from friends and family as a way to tear down troubled, in quotes, teenagers in order to reform them. And these practices, some still accepted within the, quote, troubled teen industry, unquote, and adolescent mental health treatment today essentially took a young person struggling with trauma prior to the program and traumatized her further. In addition to the program tactics being abusive, many students, myself included, she says, were also targeted and subjected to unhealthy cultic and exploitive relationships with staff members, both during and after her time at the school. Because these tactics and unhealthy relationships were so widely accepted as positive and, quote, life-changing, unquote, in and out of the cultic system, It took her many years to unravel what she had gone through and the full impact that it had on her life. And she developed this acute awareness of what she calls the wrongness of what she had been through. Upon graduating from the program, she went on to become a helping professional almost immediately and became a therapist focusing largely on misunderstood youth, traumatized children and adults, and highly dysfunctional family systems. She settled on the idea that her being safe from others was a way to heal the unfairness of what she had been through. And she grew around her trauma, creating as healthy a life as she could. Yet for many years, she struggled with self-loathing, anxiety, panic, and mistrust in herself. And it wasn't until she became a parent 
that she finally found safety within herself and was able to feel solidly okay in the world. It is important to hear her story. She talks a lot about her own trauma and also helping others with their trauma recovery. Here's Beth now. I am very excited to welcome to the show Beth Matiner. I think that it is always a really exciting thing for me when I get to meet somebody who has a certain area of expertise or areas, and I want to be able to share with her and learn from her and kind of expand our knowledge of things together just from our own perspectives. I like that whole process. And I also know that you have some personal experiences that are important for people to know about, specifically some of your early life experiences. I would love for you to take it away for a moment and introduce yourself. So I am Beth Matinair. I'm a licensed professional counselor that have been working in the field of mental health for a little over 25 years. I specialize in trauma, um, attachment, complex families, complex relationships, abuse and neglect. I would say complicated situations. And as I talk about the kids I work with, uh, complicated cookies, as I like to say. I was a complicated cookie as a young person and probably can continue to unravel some of those complications today. But I'm really into sort of the field of trauma work. I I actually also created a therapeutic boxing company that uses the body to regulate the brain. So I have a big interest in the neuroscience part of trauma recovery and our experiences in these complex situations and um, systems and the impact that they have on our brain. So looking at alternative ways to heal that throughout my time as a clinician, ranging everything from animal-assisted therapy to now movement and body-related interventions to help us process and heal from trauma. Okay. Oh, that all sounds very good. And of course, I'm noticing a a thread, a theme. I'm wondering about the idea of being a complicated cookie, first of all. So for you and for the people you work with, and then we'll be able to go more into specifically to your early years, but what does it mean to be a complicated cookie? I mean, for me, it's probably kind of being misunderstood. You know, I think I really have, well, as many mental health people, we often start kind of our career on a journey for our own answers um, or our own understanding, whether it's our own recovery or our information about our families or things that have happened to us. So I think that what I recognized is that there was sort of not a one size fits all world within therapy. And so there was a lot of my behavior or things that I struggled with that were really misunderstood in terms of where they were coming from. And so part of my focus on trauma has been, especially in the adolescent world, sort of starting there because of my own experiences that we'll talk about, was this idea that just having been so pathologized, you know, and I was just really a trauma survivor. So this idea of kind of a good kid having a hard time I think for with even within the mental health world, there is this stigma or this pathologizing that can happen. And so really being able to look at a way of being in the world and helping people that sort of destigmatizes some of that, but also really comes from a strong clinical place. And so I think when I use the term complicated cookie, it's just an affectionate way to like embrace and love the complicated people because 
you know, some of us are just a little bit, there's more complex layers of things that are going on. I think most people are maybe a bit more complicated than they think, but some people maybe have a better ability to regulate that or kind of naturally have ability to be a bit more regulated. So I actually had a hard time through a good bit of my adolescence because that regulation stuff was hard and I had a trauma response to some things that were going on. So I just have a special spot for the complicated client in terms of finding affection and um, interest in that. Okay. I think it's wonderful. The idea of not pathologizing people. I think there is this need, I think, for there to be a systems approach when you're dealing with kids, for there to be, as you know, this idea that there is an interconnectedness and a reason very often about why somebody is the the IP, the identified patient. I will sometimes notice, and I don't know if you see this too, that there are some families when I say it would be good to meet with the whole family, they say, oh, yes, I mean, we need to learn how to respond and we need to figure out how to do this. And other families have this, it's almost like they're handing you their garbage. Like here, just their, mm, can you just take this and just mm, do something with it? And then when they're fixed or when you've cleaned that off, you know, taken care of it, we'll be grateful or you can just send them back. And that's when you have this sense that that person is not naturally necessarily wired to be that way, but they're holding so much of either responding to what happened within the system or mm, so much of the either trauma or what they're observing. But clearly, you know, they're not the reason. It seems they're the, the scapegoat or sometimes kind of seen as the black sheep, for lack of a better term, but they're usually not at all. People like those are my people. That's my tribe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I was definitely the one that everybody in therapy as an adolescent was like, "What's the problem in the family?" And everybody was like, "Oh, Beth is the problem." Like it was a consensus, you know. And I was like, "Okay." So it was very validating to become a clinician and realize that that's not the way that clinicians always see it. My rule is, is as a clinician is that I don't treat children without treating the family. They are the container that that child exists in, and they are part of the solution. So if they're not engaged in treatment, also, there's, I'm really not going to be able to help really make a help them get to a solution. And so in 25 years, I think I've had two people say no, that they weren't interested, you know, and I think sometimes if it's more about you are the solution for helping, like you're part of my treatment team, you're part of helping me untangle this complicated situation and really make healing happen. A lot of times it's just those parents don't have those, they haven't had those resources, right? They don't really know. They're just doing the best they can. And so most of them, I think, given some compassion, aren't really just wanting to drop off their kid. But, you know, there's been a couple, but I think most people have been open to that approach. I'm glad to hear that. I have a renewed sense of faith in the process hearing that. I'm generally a fairly optimistic person though. So maybe it's a little more than two, but I, you know, not as, not most of the time, most of the time people are like, thank you. We would like to know how to be, you know, healing parents. So that's wonderful. I want to just tell a little story and then have that tie into this idea of kids being seen as the troubled ones and then being sent somewhere to deal with that. So I remember running a support group for families who had kids who were getting into, I don't know, getting into doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing and, and in a multiple way, not just a one-time kind of issue. And one of the kids that I was working with talked about how a lot of what they did was to get their parents' attention because it was very hard to do that, exceedingly hard to do that. And by the end of an eight-week 
family program that I was doing with a lot of these families. We had a chance at the end to go around and have the families talk about what they felt like they had gotten. And also, more importantly, with their teen sitting there, what they want to be able to provide for that teen or what the teen really still needs from them or is grateful to have been starting to receive. And the one who was very sure that part, you know, the reason that, you know, that they did what they did was because the parents were so self-focused. I saw it after that eight-week program. And it, it was hard because you want to know that you've made an impact. And um, when people were going around and parents were going around, they were talking about how proud they were of their children and how much they felt so happy they understood them. And this one mom said, well, I'm just really happy because I feel vindicated and that I know now that my child has a problem and that's why I've been so frustrated with them. And now I know that I, I'm not a bad parent, that my kid has issues and that I've done the best I can. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, look, okay. I wanted to do redo, redo something. something this is not a narcissist series. <laughs> exactly. Like, Where's would the you... narcissist in the room? Like, where's Waldo? Right. And I, right. I want to say one of those, like, would you mind staying after class for a moment? Because <laughs> I think you missed <laughs> You missed the point. But, uh, but I, you know, I got to see what some kids, even after trying, what they're up against. And so then with this person who had a hard time with regulation, et cetera, tell us a little bit about your story, about where you were sent and why, and sort of embarking on that experience, if you can. So I was in what they're now highlighting uh, called the troubled teen industry. Um, I was in a program at 15 that came from the CD school programs, which came from the Synanon cult. Uh, we were actually started by some of the founders of CD, one of the founders of CDU, and then some staff from there and some students that went on to become staff to start our school. I mean, it was, it was a very interesting story, but because as a result of kind of how that school started, we were sort of wiped out of the history of those CD schools. So we've had kind of an interesting coming to an awakening process about our experiences. So I was in that program um, for about two years and, you know, it was a based on attack therapy. So really it was about the idea of tearing people down to build them back up again. I think it was a program that had several different types of narcissists operating in kind of the, some of the higher levels of that. So there was a lot of emotionally abusive things that happened. Um, this program itself has a, a layer of being emotionally abusive just by the nature of attack therapy. And then some of the people that were in that realm of run that were definitely also unhealthy people in terms of how they related to people. In terms of the history you were talking about, Dinanon, Sidhu, and TTI, and many other schools that came from this rubric that was started at Synanon, I still to this day, I look in my mailbox before I put my hand in because to this day, because of what happened, I think in the late 70s, to Paul Morantz, who was this attorney who was, um, who took on the case of Synanon. And I think it was two Synanon members who put a rattlesnake in his mailbox. And I have to tell you, that has stayed with me because of the work that I do. <laughs> and, and so I worked with a number of people and they talked about uh, this kind of group, quote unquote, therapy. I hate to use the word therapy, but that's what it was called in this model of the game. That was something that people have come to me to talk about, to talk about how traumatizing it was. Things like that have, I believe, made their way 
into a lot of these splinter groups and the children and grandchildren of Synanon. And is that something that happened in TTI or a form of it? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, so the program that I was in, we had those, they called them RAPs or forums. So originally in the Synanon program, they were called RAPs. That's what they're calling the game. Um, and then and they went, I think they were the game in Synanon and then RAPs at CDU. And then they were sort of RAPs for a while with us, I think, and they changed it to forums. Um, but it was essentially a room where you would confront and attack people and the room would kind of gang up on people and you know, this idea that you would tear them down, right? The idea was to create this, elicit this huge emotional response or catharsis that would have someone kind of really surrender. And, you know, so looking at it now, we basically were being you know, assaulted into fight or flight or shutdown responses where people would just freak out. And that was very like, great, right? That was the more vicious and, you know, cathartic and emotional and snotty and, you know, just out of control it was like the better it was, right? And so even staff were kind of trained to be this incredibly, aggressive vehicles of that. And so I think, you know, as again, as I learned as a clinician about kind of trauma response and what, what's happening and these ideas of safety and the importance of like agency and control for people and in their healing, it was like, oh my gosh, there was none of that. You know, they were, and I was a kid, I was 15, you know, recovering from trauma or still, you know, activated from trauma and 3000 miles from home with no resources or way to get back home. I did leave at one point and it's a long story about running away, but but one of the most traumatic moments for me actually is when that happened and I realized that my parents weren't going to let me come back. I had been sort of, I've gotten away and got to a phone and was able to say like, I, I can't be here anymore. It was very destructive. And some of the things that were happening within some relationships with me were really destructive. And my parents were like, you know, we can't help you. And so I was, you know, 16, I think at that point, couldn't support myself financially. I was a troubled, bad kid that nobody could really help, you know, other than my friends who believed me, but they didn't have money to get me, you know, all the way to the coast. And so that moment, you know, we talk about like the most destructive parts of trauma being that idea of inescapability. And so just all of those layers of inescapability and sort of surrender. And I think there was just something in that moment that for me was probably one of the most poignant, poignant pieces in terms of destructiveness, because it was just that idea that I was alone in the world um, in this really significant way. And I think that you know, I had felt that other places where I was traumatized too, but that was like the real, that place where you just don't feel like you're really, you have an option, right? Or you just have to concede and comply. And, you know, for my own survival, I did truly, right? Like I couldn't have just left and started hitchhiking as a young woman across the country. And I mean, not safely um, to be able to get away. So I went back in and drank the Kool-Aid so that I could get through that experience. And I think in order, you know, to survive that, even um, psychologically to survive it on some level, I just wanted to keep moving forward and keep going into the world and, and just get, you know, feeling better. And so I didn't even really want to look back. Like there was a part of just knowing that something wasn't okay, but also not really wanting to explore it all that much. And I think with some of the ways that this movement has come forward where people have started to talk about this industry, you really get gaslit to some extent that it's not a problem, right? Like you went to residential care or you went to all this program or you did wilderness or you did these things. So you should be better. And so even within the clinical world, there's not a huge understanding about what does it mean if someone went to a therapeutic boarding school? Like that should have been a really great thing for them, right? They got all this help rather than this idea that, that maybe some of these places and even ones that aren't as destructive as where I were, were this idea of losing your autonomy at that significant age, that really important age does have a lasting impact on people. And so you add to that impact kind of being gaslit that it shouldn't have been a problem or your 
their parents not believing that it's a problem because they thought they were doing the right thing, I think you end up with a very complicated layer of trauma response. Right. Okay. I want to be able to talk more about you running away because I've had other people on the podcast who have been in some of these centers, most of whom have tried to escape, sometimes successfully, but still they couldn't go back home and other times not successfully. And then when they went back, when it wasn't successful, things were ramped up for them because they had run away and they were seen somehow as more troubled, even though it's a a natural inclination to want to be able to get your freedom back. You know, in fact, I remember learning years ago, there was this diagnosis given to to slaves, slaves who tried to run away. There was a, um, I don't know if he was a clinician or uh, not sure, maybe just a physician, but there was a term, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's drapetomania or drapetomania. And that was the diagnosis given to slaves who were trying to get free. So it was pathologized. So which which is so mind bending. And, you know, the people who brought them into slavery, that wasn't pathologized. You know, people taking away other people's lives. That's fine. But when someone says, I need to be able to breathe freely in this world and be free, and that's considered, you know, diagnosable, which just shows about the kind of thinking at the time. But that kind of thinking still exists in other frameworks. So how were you viewed or seen after you escaped and needed to go back? Well, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things that I, I would say most survivors from programs would say is one of the main things you can't talk about is how much you hate the program, right? Like that's resistance, right? You're being clinically resistant if you're, t- I mean, I couldn't say, hey, I hate being screamed at three times a week for three hours at a time, or I hate being put up in front of a room and being made to perform in front of my peers and calling that therapy, or I hate being put in costumes and going through crazy workshops. So you can't talk about the obvious traumatic experience that's happening in front of you. And so I would say similarly, even with leaving, like, you know, there's no avenue to talk about why you're leaving. And I will say, you know, the entire time I was there, I didn't have one conversation with my parents that was not monitored by a staff member. So it wasn't like there was all this thing to say, hey, this is awful, or hey, this person is being inappropriate with me or any of that. I couldn't do that. And and, And my family was told not to believe anything that I said. That was sort of standard was, they're going to run away. They're going to tell you that we're abusing them. We're going to tell you that they're going to tell you it's awful here. And so they were really on the front end, pretty front loaded with not to listen to anything that, you know, we would have to say as adolescents. So we were pretty disenfranchised as far as our sense of being heard or, you know, trustworthy, or we were really kind of undermined already, um, already because we were struggling at home, right? So we were youth having a hard time um, for various reasons, most of them trauma related, right? Which we would hear all about people's trauma while we were there. And, you know, but we were really pathologized as sort of bad screw up, screw up kids. And so when I left, it was just sort of more evidence to support the screw up. I think, you know, I was pretty good initially at being able to look pretty good. So you'd even get yelled at and indicted for that, right? You'd be a look good. So if you looked too good, you would get yelled at. If you were resistant, you get yelled at. There was just no escape. So, um, but I was one of those people that learned pretty quickly how to kind of comply with the system, right? Like I figured out really early on by something that happened that, oh, wow, this really isn't safe. And like, what you need to do is walk this line or you're going to end up, it's going to be worse for you. And I watched kids that really rebelled and pushed back and 
initially I didn't do that. Actually, I was pretty much, okay. I was go with the flow until I got backed in the corner and then I was, you know, would fight with all I had, but like normally I would sort of try to be I was Southern and I would be friendly and polite as long as I didn't get pushed too hard. Um, so when I left, it was pretty surprising for people because I had been there over a year, like maybe about 14 months out of a two-year program. So I would been there, I was in the upper level of the school. I was sort of mentoring younger kids and I just walked out one day. Um, and part of that was because things had got, the, I was sort of in a pressure cooker and some of the inappropriateness had got worse and things were like my danger signal was going off. And so I just couldn't do it anymore. And so actually, even as I was walking out to run away with this young person that I left with, um, people were like, hey, watch out, this guy's running away. You know, so nobody had any idea that I was going to leave. And so when I did, it was a big like shock, you know, for everybody. Now they did tell this, every, my friends there that I had like run away and I was doing, you know, crystal meth in the mountains and sleeping with all these men and all these horrible stories that were nothing about kind of who I was. And truth was, I was with this family that had like picked me up in town and was afraid to take me back because they, I was really telling them how abusive things were. And so they, you know, that kind of resolved in a way that they ended up having to let them know where we were. When I came back, I couldn't speak to anybody in the school. So one of the systems of control they had there was that if you did something that was unacceptable, you were not allowed to speak to other people. They couldn't look at you. They couldn't talk to you. They couldn't make, they couldn't make any kind of contact, even like physically be you know, near you. So you were really ostracized. And so so for the rest of my time, from when I ran away till graduation, I was on some form of what they called bands with the entire program. So for many, many months, it was just me chopping wood and, you know, I was isolated from everybody for sort of being punished for leaving, which in some ways as an introvert, it was kind of welcomed in terms of I had my own time to just be left alone and I didn't have to deal, deal with anybody in my space. But in other ways, it was really hard because there were people that I loved that when I left were really upset with me. They were really hurt. They were told that I was doing these horrible things and it just wasn't the case. They didn't know kind of things that were happening to me within the program that weren't okay because I couldn't talk about them. And so I was just pretty isolated. And then I ended up kind of being a huge success story because I got very compliant, right? Like I immediately was like, I'm going to just say what I want to say. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do the program. I'm going to go for it. You know, this idea I was going to go for broke. Um, and I was, if they were going to really, if everybody else was going to get healthier than I was going to do whatever they said. And so I did kind of look like I rocketed into success after running away. But part of what also happened was I just stopped resisting, right? Where I, I just knew that I had no other option. So either I was going to absorb everything they were teaching me and try to make something of it, or I was just going to spiral and end up in another hospital or kind of pathologized and sick and, you know, feeling, you know, that broken for the rest of my life. And so I did have some growth in terms of my own ability to fight, but it was really more about me choosing what I was going to absorb and me taking those pieces forward with me rather than just pleasing them. So I had this mixed thing go on where part of me just kind of gave up, but then part of me also started fighting at the same time. And so it was a really pivotal moment for me, but I, I think, and I think it did change me in that moment as far as making some decisions, but I, I definitely faked it on the outside a lot more from that point on because I just wanted to get out and be done. Right. And I'm thinking about this family that picked you up too. I mean, the, just the, the kindness of strangers, really. Those stories always really get to me that people are willing to do that for others. And also, what was it like for you to be believed? You had a chance to tell your stories and you had someone say, that's awful. 
I mean, I think in some ways it's actually kind of painful. So, and this is the very cult-like kind of part of it. Like there was this immediate, I mean, the first thing that me and my runaway partner did is we talked about like all the music we weren't allowed to talk about, right? Everything that we weren't supposed to talk about, we literally sat on the side of a mountain and just talked about it, you know? And after like that hour, it was like, okay, the thrill is gone. Like, what do we do now? But, um, and we did hike. I just have to say for your listeners, it was the middle of November in Northern California. So it was freezing um, and we hiked 50 miles. So it was a pretty substantial trek. You know, we slept at night, hiked, or we slept during the day, we hid places, slept during the day, and then would hike at night. And, you know, it took us two days to get down to the town where these people picked us up. But so there was definitely part of it that was very great to have an adult believe us and take care of us, right? Like they were very kind and we, they, we felt very safe. It was very strange, you know, to be in this person's house. And again, we're so far from home and we're so young. And it was also just really painful because when I knew I had to go back, I almost sort of didn't want to be, like, I just wanted to believe what they were telling me, right? Like it was easier to say, okay, well, maybe you're right. Like maybe I am this really broken thing that only you can fix and you're going to now save me. And so I do find that I still, even within myself, have this place that'll flip-flop where I have this very specific understanding of my experience, how painful it was, how hard it was, but then I have this another part that wants to kind of rescue me and like tell the story in this very sanitized way that's trying to help. Well, maybe it wasn't that bad, right? Like there were good moments and you had good friends and think about like, you know, how great that was. And so I have this part that flip-flops. I don't think I'm the only survivor that has that part for sure, but I do have my tendency is I have this part that rescues me inside by wanting to like make it all okay, <laughs> So it's almost this process of like talking myself in and out of understanding my experience um, that can waffle sometimes in terms of when there's really painful points like that. So I, I even did that then where I remember kind of when I got away being like, oh my God, you're right. This place is so, this is awful, right? Like they're doing what to you? And I would have to like, I was telling these people what, you know, they were like, and to watch their face was like, you know, so validating, but also so terrifying in just the totality of what had been going on for a year in over a year to really have to accept that it's almost easier to pretend that maybe it's not so bad. And I'm just, you know, I'm just being overreactive about it. It's fascinating that you're talking about that because I think you're, you're talking so much about the brain protecting itself. When I talk to people who were able to narrowly escape a very bad situation for them to think about what could have happened if they had stayed or to find out that the person they were with wasn't just a, someone who lost his cool every once in a while, but was actually a sociopath and had done all these other things and all these other crimes. There is something about what that does to the brain and how it overloads it. It's interesting because I also wonder how many people and how many places get away with more than they should because the traumatized ones who are there or who leave still need to be able to somehow make it okay in their minds. And they're not doing it for those people. They're doing it for themselves. And so that's a very interesting thing that you brought up, actually. Well, and I would say when I learned, you know, when I started really delving into complex trauma and learned about, you know, so there's fight, flight, freeze, but there's also that fawn and flatter response. And when I, that was, has probably been one of the most helpful things for me to understand it, just in terms of like that, that response often comes when there's real danger, like real significant danger. And so I think that 
you know, we think that the, the louder runaway response is going to be kind of when we're in significant danger. And actually, you know, that shutdown or even that fawn flatter response is generally the safest bet in those situations. And so you end up, whether it's with a program or with a single abuser, with a form of kind of a Stockholm flatter, you know, fawn response. And it helps me really understand my own my own response to kind of an individual person, but also my response to the program in terms of that total, that total inescapability, right? Like what that really was about and how, because I, I, we have students that come out that are very angry and aggressive and they see it really clearly and they're really upset and they're really dysregulated. And then there's the ones that are hundred percent, like you're not going to shift my point of view that this was you know, the most wonderful thing in the world and it saved my life and I, I owe them everything. And, you know, realizing that underneath that is really this, this like fond response, right. And for some of those people and that there's a reason why we did that. And so a lot of what um, has been helpful for me and other survivors is just sort of that knowledge of that and that self-compassion that things don't always look the way that we think that they're going to look on paper, right? The way that we survive it. And this is what I, why I love survivors and working with survivors and those complicated cookies is that everybody finds their own particular way to that survivorship. And it's not always badly pathological. It makes sense. It's logical. It just may be our survival logic, not necessarily, you know, our frontal logic, you know, or so I think that there are moments where, wow, like I now understand why I did what I did because it was that bad, right? Not because I'm so faulty, but because actually the stressors and the danger and the inescapability was as bad as it looked to my brain. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's so interesting. Yes. I think when people talk about, or they open up about a traumatic event and then as opposed to it being a period, it's a comma and then the word, but it seems like then it goes into that flatter and fawn or fawn and flatter that, but I was a very difficult kid and this program was helping me or the person who did this to me was really misunderstood and had come from a difficult background himself or herself. And so it goes into this other space, I think where the water gets very muddied, but it is something that is a very natural thing to do. And maybe it's part of self-regulation. One of my survivor colleagues and friends, she definitely struggles more with getting angry, right? So she has a hard time letting go of the anger as her response. I have a hard time not forgiving, right? Like I have to really stop walking my back, my plate myself back from this, like this empathy and understanding and everybody's really kind of in a complex system and, and sometimes just go, no, like it's not okay. And, and that idea of being able to just own that boundary, right? So someone said to me recently, you know, we're talking about like anger is just a sign that your boundary is getting crossed. Well, I was programmed so heavily to not have a boundary, you know, because there was places where I was being targeted and things that were happening. Like I, it was really ingrained in me and taught to me, like, you don't have a self, like you have no boundary. And so, and, and people would meet me and think I'm actually a very boundary person now. It's part of what makes me safe with people is you really know where I stand. And I'm very clear about that. But internally at that point, I really didn't know how to do that, right? That was part of that autonomy stage. And so I had really got taught not to do that because it would upset my family or it would upset my school or my counselor or whatever. And so I have to really walk myself back to accepting that it's a problem over and over and over again. Because like I said, that forgiving, understanding, compassionate, complex me wants to like, I understand the rationalization for all of it. But at some point you just have to go, it's not okay, right? Like people shouldn't be treated that way and it's not okay. And so I think even for myself, like there's been a process of really having to just own that I'm not really okay with what happened. 
Um, like that wasn't okay to do. And, it, and it's helped, you know, it's helped me now. I have a daughter that's kind of coming into adolescence. And when I think about her and someone talking to her that way, or somebody putting her through workshops or doing some of the things that we did, the idea that someone would do that to my child and the impact that would have on her is so easy for me to be like, no, not okay. Right? It's like a really clear, never in a million, like, no, like no way. And you thought me into that being helpful. And so that's helped, right? Because I had never have this external thing that, um, that I could see myself as a young person. Cause you just don't, you know, I don't 15 year old me didn't feel like I was 15 year old vulnerable me, right? Like it was like, I, I deserved that, or I was a bad kid or I was always getting in trouble. And so, you know, but to see what a 15 year old looks like, as far as my own child really makes it different in terms of what I would be willing to let happen to her. There are two other things that I wanted to be able to get through. And I know that we're getting close to the end of our time talking, but, you know, a lot of people think about these places as being these sort of old school, old school places that don't exist anymore, but they very much do. And I'm really wondering about that with all that now that the groundswell of uh, people telling their stories and the press and uh, of course, the, the, the need for more oversight and legal reform around that. There are so many of these places uh, that are run by people who don't have qualifications. And even if they do have qualifications, they still should not be doing what they're doing. And in fact, a lot of them, I think, should be in jail. I've worked with families even just recently who have kids who they're having difficulty with. And they call a place that really seems very legitimate. And they say they're going to send people over to take your child out of their bed in the middle of the night. And it's here here in Los Angeles and this year. So this is something that is still happening around us. And I'm just, I'm wondering about programs like TTI and others. Why do you think they're still around? Well, I mean, I think that they're because there's a need. And so until we have an alternative, and this is where I might, you know, um, I don't know if I'll piss them off, but why I might disagree a little bit with some of the people in some of the movements within the TTI kind of advocacy stuff about kind of shut them all down. The problem, and this is, I mean, I see this as a clinician all the time. I mean, sometimes it's a better alternative than what they're in. And so, you know, if we know that trauma is generational and we know that it's systemic and we know, like, there are times when if we don't have services that heal the system, then there are, there are times when someone is better off kind of being outside of the system, at least temporarily until the system can get some intervention. So I think one, so I definitely don't appeal, agree at all with programs that don't intensively work with families, period, like not there, right? Um, but until like one of my first jobs when I was coming out of my graduate um, program was I worked in families that had been found guilty and abuse of, of abuse and neglect of their kids. And I did intensive home-based therapy, like five days a week with people that had already, like, it wasn't like they looked like they were abusive, like they were found guilty by the state. And so, and I did intensive therapy aggressively with these families, strength-based therapy to really work on healing the system so that out-of-home placement wasn't necessary, right? So this place I worked with had like an 80% success rate of people not reoffending and harming their children again, but they were rare, right? They were a program that was different. They believed in sort of preventing foster care. I mean, amazingly, they were funded by the state, but there are not those programs here, right? So there's nothing like that where I am. 
And so this idea we have to, in order to stop the TTI, there has to be a shift in the way that we intervene with youth and the way we intervene with families. And until that system is set up that we have wraparound services or we have intensive home-based services coming in, where we're really looking at that system and what it's going to take to help that youth because they're symptomatic essentially, or even this, the cultural issues of why, why are there certain groups of youth that are all incarcerated? Like we're not, those, those are bigger issues. So unfortunately I feel like TTI is also symptomatic in terms of why it needs to be there. So if we could address that piece, then there wouldn't really be a need for all of these programs, but there is still a need in terms of regulating them. Legislature catches part of it. I just literally had this conversation with someone yesterday that's doing legislative work, which I love. And if anybody wants more advocates, I'm out there and willing to be helpful. But legislative catches the overt abuse, right? It catches the more overt problem. It doesn't catch all the covert problems, even just in its existence, taking a child away from their family, taking their phone away, cutting them off from their friends, taking all their rights away, they, they, all that everything is controlled. That's problematic during that stage of autonomy development. Like it's problematic just in the way that it affects that person's development of agency and of control of themselves and shame and all. And so we're, I don't feel, and I mean, you're in the mental health field, Rachel. I don't feel like we're talking about that. That's problematic. Um, I'm certainly- right working on a training right now for a therapist that is TTI informed. So I'm working with, you know, program to try to get some credentials for CE trainings for therapists about that so that we know what the injury is. But I think one, we've got to prevent the need for TTI um, to address that. Now on the covert side, I think we need to have professionals that are trained and understanding to help people to unpack that experience. So even though a program may have provided them something positive, it doesn't mean that there isn't still a part of their neurology that's still going to react in a certain way to having all that autonomy taken away. And I will say across the line, though, there are other programs that are overtly abusive, like the pray away the gay programs, like that just needs to be shut down. It is that there's no, again, sort of like when there's this a line where you go, not okay, not okay, right? Abuses of human rights, abuses of power, that needs to stop. There are programs that are getting away with that because of religious protections or loopholes that people are finding legislatively to keep those programs running that do need to stop. But the rest of them that are clinically based, even using evidence-based treatment, I don't know that that solves the whole problem either. It's in itself a very complex problem that's nuanced about families needing support. Oftentimes it is a, like a generational trauma issue happening about why are those parents and those, those families having a hard time. So we have to be thinking of it in a bigger systemic way in terms of changing it, in my opinion. So I think you can catch some of the overt abuse, but the covert stuff about power differentials and, you know, a good example would be a lot of people go into working at those programs that are wounded themselves, right? And they really wanna do a good job and they really wanna help youth, but they haven't really resolved their own trauma. So when that youth starts to push and press against that system, which is what adolescents do when they've been traumatized, they might get really triggered. And so there isn't a lot of like trauma-informed training for staff in terms of working in those programs. And so I think there are layers of things that we could do to make the system more aware and make clinicians more aware that on the front end could help a lot just until we have a bigger solution of that systemic problem in terms of more wraparound home-based, community-based interventions. But right, I think about all the people who are sent to these places who have such a variety of different issues and also family constellations and issues and where the parents are really just, I don't want any messiness. So I'm going to send my child away or my child is trans and I can't accept them. So I need to have that be 
somehow corrected, which is horrific also, and pray away the gay and all of that. And then you have kids who do have some severe issues and families that have severe issues, but they're all sent to these places where a lot of them are not able to get the help that they need, but sometimes they don't need help. And so I think that that also adds to the confusing picture. There are clusters of families for sure that use therapy in a pretty abusive way also. I really struggle with that a lot because I do end up in a lot of really unhealthy attachment systems with families where it is sort of punishing or shaming or punitive and therapy becomes, well, make them stop doing that, right? If you were doing your job, you know? And, And so I think that there are times where therapy can get kind of weaponized for abusive parents or the emotionally abusive parents or the system becomes part of that abusive system. So again, therapists not knowing that they're becoming part of this narrative, this kid is the bad kid. And now they're still kind of carrying that narrative on. They become like an extension, an extensive abusive arm of that family system. I think it's a really complicated problem where we just don't have a lot of other options at this point. So I do like, you know, I, I'm a fan of kind of the alternative things like the boxing or equine therapy or things that are just more outside of that box, not outside the box so woo-woo that, you know, that it that it's not safe, but that you're really providing something that's not reinforcing the pathology in that child. Sometimes even in my own office, I feel like, gosh, they just keep coming here and they have this idea that they're the problem. They're so broken or everybody's so sick and it's not really helping anybody to continue that belief. And I think there are some that are not um, healthy at all that really use the TTI programs or residential treatment as a punishment. And anytime I'm referring a family and I have referred out of home placements, it's very first conversation is always like, you're not going to make this decision because you're punishing this child. Like you're get, you're saying that we need more help than we can do right now. And you have to commit into being in just as much intervention as this child in order for me to support that decision. And so there's a lot of, it's not like you're so bad, we can't handle it. Like I, that's not okay. That does happen a lot. You know, for me, there's a complicated question when I'm asked, like, how can I, after a survivor of TTI, ever refer into the TTI? And, and I have. It's, a, it's been a hard question to answer ethically for me. Often it's because it's like, you know, from the, what do they say, the frying pan into the whatever. The into like, the fire. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like the part of like knowing that, okay, at least there's some consistency over here that no one's going to get like their hands around their throat, hopefully, you know, where if things are really getting to that point where someone's going to have DSS involved and they're going to end up in foster care and all that, which is also a problem, the system. So I think there's no easy way out sometimes. What I do think about is how that program handles their problems. So I will tell people, like, if you talk to a program and they say, well, we never have abuse here, or we never, that never happens with our staff. Like, that's a bad system. Like, they, if they're not a self-aware system that says, you know, we try to monitor it this way and we check in. If we ever see anything looks wonky, we do this. Like, that's different. Because even the most benign model used in the hands of somebody that's abusing power can be harmful to somebody. And so even parenting with a power abuse underneath it, which looks like giving consequences can become a problem. And so I really think that it's not always about the program or is it the right evidence-based modality? I think that's important because you're kind of catching the worst of the worst, but also this awareness of, are you aware that you're fallible? Like, are you aware that humans abuse power? Are you aware that you need to be looking at your staff this way? And so the ones that I trust are ones that are aware of that right? They're kind of self-aware programs. And if I call and say, listen, something about this counselor seems off. They did this and this with my kid. They immediately listen to me and go, okay, well, that's not usually someone that makes it, you know, that whatever they listen to that. Okay. Let's look at that. Let's make, 
let's see what's going on. And they make an adjustment or they add more supervision to that person or they, you know, that person leaves their program. And so I have had that happen before where I've been concerned about something. And, and if a program addresses it, then I would see that as a safer program. Right. Okay. And so it sounds like you want to be able to have people go, but with their eyes open and to know what to watch out for and that you've done your homework and the families need to do their homework. And I think it's a very empowered way of approaching it and being able to make a much more educated decision that a lot of people make when they just find some place and they say, oh, good, here's an option. Well, I mean, anything can look good on a website, you know, anybody can make their brochure beautiful. And some of the ones that are run by bigger companies, they have incredible 35 page beautiful brochure that, you know, and what my parents said is it looked great on paper and it did. My school looked amazing. The campus is gorgeous. Like it was great education with therapy. And like, why wouldn't you want to send your kid there? I ultimately wish that we didn't have to do out of placements at all because we had enough support for families and mental health that everybody could heal and get better. And, you know, but that's just not the world we live in at this moment. Um, But I do think for people, they are faced with that hard decision that their gut feeling about it, their real gut reaction, the way, and, and for me, the best way is how does someone respond to if you ask them hard questions? How do they respond if you ask about, do they make mistakes? And this is true in personal relationships too. You know, if somebody responds that they're perfect and they never make a mistake and they're dismissive of you, get away. Not for you. Doesn't check the box. You know, so safe is something that's self-aware, that has a, a control measure for that, that's listening to you, that's not going to dismiss you as a parent or, or dismiss your child if they have a complaint against somebody. All of that is important for it to be a safe, trusting place. They have made some legislative moves for things for like that kids can have unsupervised phone calls, um, that they're not monitored all the time, um, but that we also have to encourage parents to listen to their children. So it's a very circular problem in terms of all the different spokes of the wheel to be able to right. And I think also in terms of listening to your children, I've talked to a number of people who were in some of these places who knew they were being listened to and they were hoping their parents would pick up on the tone and in the spaces, the delay before answering a question, like hear what I'm saying in what I'm not saying in the gray. And they were always so disappointed when their parents just listened to the words, the the things that they were supposed to say, as opposed to how they said it. and we're we're trying to sort of seem a little sadder while they said something even happy uh, in all those subtleties, trying to, you know, because people really want to, I think, feel understood. I know this will probably be for another time that we talk, but just as we're finishing up, I know that when people come out of situations like this, and, and for other reasons too, they wind up in relationships with people who take over or the, the people give over their power or have it manipulated away from them kind of in similar ways in relationships later on. And then I think it's just something worth mentioning. And from the work that you've done, is that something that you've seen? Oh, yeah. One of the great things about being a TTI survivor and being a therapist is all of these kids that I work with that have come out of programs and they, you know, they think they're working on their daily stress and that we're like, no, no, mm-hmm. we stop. Mm-hmm. Like they're working on how do you trust yourself? How do you listen to yourself? How do you, you know, because you really get told that you are broken, essentially, even now, right? It was much, maybe it was more overt in the time that I was in my program where it was really aggressive, but there's still this covert thing about like, you are so unhealthy and your mental health is so bad that you have to go get fixed. And there is this underlying place where like the program fixes you, 
not you and your own resourcefulness or what you took from the program. The, the responsibility is really given to the program mm-hmm. school. And so I think what happens is, and I don't think people are trying to do that in a sinister way, but it is the way that we're, you know, it's CBT that saved me. It's, you know, trauma therapy. It's not the actual person. And so I think what they lose and what they need to develop when they come out is their own sense of being able to trust themselves and listen to themselves and understanding that they did that work. Therefore, they can listen to themselves so that when they get into relationships with people, they're not going defaulting back to this place that I'm this trouble broken kind of thing. Well, look, oh my God, my fault, right? Which is like standard you know, standard TTI survivor and cult survivor, like somebody doesn't return a message to you and you send them a text and it's like, oh my God, what did I do? Are they mad at me? Like I must've done something wrong, you know? And like really helping to restore that sense of like, I'm okay. And I did these things for myself. And I think that to me is probably the biggest thing that I think sets youth up and adults, you know, coming out of situations as well, that be vulnerable is this idea that they cannot trust their own sense or their own sense of who they are. And especially think about that's happening for a teenager during their identity development, like why it's so hard to really go on and have healthy relationships and trust yourself is that, you know, you lost that autonomy at that really important moment. So the work for me with those adolescents and what I would love to teach other therapists to do is really highlight how do you really then help them resolve that and figure out where their own resources are so they can celebrate that and use those things to help themselves move forward. I think it's a perfect place to stop for today and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk some more. And before we end, where can people find out about the work that you do and websites, whatever else you want to share? I am online at bethmatnair.com. I have a website there and I do consulting. So I do some, you know, I do therapy. I'm also doing consulting with people on cases and finding complicated solutions for things. The boxing program is called Think Boxing. So it's thinkboxing.co, not .com. And we are actually getting ready in July to start certifying coaches nationally. So if somebody has like a boxing coach in their area that they would like to get specifically Think Boxing certified, or they know someone that's a fitness trainer that has some boxing experience that might be really good at it. We're opening up that nationally for coaches all over the country to get certified in that modality so that we can get more people you know, engaged in being able to provide that as a way for mental health intervention. Wonderful. I have one other thing I'm involved in. So I, you know, Yanya Lalich. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm also doing, um, with one of my colleagues, we are doing a group around support for coming out of cults and high control groups and high demand systems. And so we are developing curricula for that. We've got a psychoeducational series that's running right now. We'll have another one probably starting in June at some point. They're little four-week blocks of psychoeducational groups. And we are looking at continuing those for survivors of those groups, but also possibly doing some TTI-specific stuff for survivors around that as well and writing some curriculum and workbooks uh, to support that healing process. It's called Take Back Your Life Recovery is that series. And you can find it through Yanya Lalich and what she's doing. Wonderful. So good to speak with you and to hear about what you're doing and also what you went through and what you are doing because of it, not just because of what you went through, but also what kind of person you are. And a great sense, I think, of acceptance and as you're saying, not spending the day fighting with yourself especially when you've had other people fighting against you. You don't want to fight against you also. Okay. Thank you so much. And hopefully we will talk again. I know there's so much more to cover and I really appreciate your time and all that you're doing. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Beth. 
it is truly horrible to hear some of the things that she talked about. I mean, truly, it it is really remarkable what people are put through, what people are made to have to deal with in their lives. And I think all the more so when it's something that a parent puts you through, a parent usually unknowingly. I know, again, that the reason that I care about this, of course, is that it's still happening. This is not old news. And people really need to know that if they're having issues with their children of any sort, they need to do their research. They need to look into programs if they want to send them to a program that are run by people who are licensed professionals, where also they can talk to people who are at liberty to talk about why maybe they pulled their children out of the program and why they liked it, why it was good or bad, in order to make a more fully educated decision. But I do think, no matter what, when you have your children sent away without them having any idea about what's about to happen to them, or when you have them kidnapped in the middle of the night by people they don't know, taken out of their bed, you are causing harm. You are causing trauma. And I think there always are other choices. A lot of people will tell you if your child is acting out uh, or seems out of control that the best thing that you can do is send them to one of these places. And sometimes those people are being paid off to tell you that. Or sometimes they just think that they can see the wear and tear of having a child like this and they want you to be able to have a break. So they want you to send their child away. And you might also feel like you need a break from your child. But I think pushing them into something that traumatizes them will make them always wonder about why these places still exist and also why their parent did this to them. To a much less degree, but I still see it. During all the summers that I would send my kids to summer camp, I would sometimes hear parents say, okay, bye, as their kid is getting on the bus. I hope you have a good time at camp. We're definitely going to have a good time having you out of the house. Or, you know, saying to the counselor as they're depositing their child at camp, good luck. I'm glad he's your problem, not mine for the next month. And so I think even in those smaller ways, with kids just being sent to summer camp, which is usually a good experience, the messages that are in those moments are so, so damaging. And what is criminal, not only is the way people are treated in these programs, but the way that parents are often deceived too. There are a lot of parents who I've talked to who had no idea. They really had no idea that the program was as awful as it was. And they went online and they saw that there were no bad reviews, which is already suspicious because even people who have any kind of gripe should be able to write a review, even if they just weren't happy with the food. And so if you know that there are no bad reviews, everything is stellar, five star, that should be just as suspicious as if the place just has a one star. And so you're not getting all the information and people are usually being threatened into silence or rewarded for their good review. I know it happens all the time. If there are 
questions that you have about certain places, certainly do your research. Contact organizations online that are to educate the public about these teen treatment places, these residential treatment programs. When people are silenced, they are kept from being able to protect themselves. But one of the things that Beth talked about that I just want to talk about briefly is this idea, inescapability, that trauma itself is connected to a feeling and to the reality at times of inescapability. When I think about some of the people I've worked with, some partners of abusers who were reliant on them financially or uh, where the abuser threatened to take their child away from them if they left them, where they really felt cornered, where they really felt trapped, then they were further traumatized by the fact that they were cornered, that there was no way out. One of the things that I talk about on this podcast that I want to reiterate now is that if you are the other, if you are the friend, the family member, the partner of someone in a situation that is an unhealthy situation where they have potentially acted out in the past, so you've sent them to some place, or they've been involved in a relationship where they've cut you out of their life because probably they had to if they were in an abusive or controlling relationship and your feelings get hurt, you still want them to know, absolutely want them to know that they have a place to come to and that you will help them. You will give them a burner phone that they can use that's untraceable. You will give them some money if they need it for a bus ticket. You will give them a warm place to come to that's safe without questions asked unless they want the questions to be asked. Because a lot of people suffer for much longer than they need to, than they should have to, because they do feel that there's nowhere for them to go. They feel like they have burned their bridges. They feel like they have kind of, for lack of a better term, pissed off the people who have been caring about them. But they were often taught to by, again, their controllers. In this situation, though, with teenagers, Teenagers already feel like they're at the mercy of the adults around them. And add to that a situation where you have locked doors, locked gates, where people cannot communicate with each other. They can't be honest on the phone when they call their parents to talk about how awful it is there and how they really need to be picked up and how they need to be able to have an escape hatch. What happens when you feel that the horrible situation that you're in is inescapable? is that you shut down or you start to behave like a trapped wild animal. So it creates very often this pendulum swing of extremes, of a real shutting down almost into a place of being comatose because it doesn't matter how unhappy you are because no one listens anyway and it's not going to matter. Or you start to act out so much just because you're thinking, well, what the hell? I can't get out of here anyway. So it can bring out these extremes in you. Again, if you are the other, if you are the people who care about these teenagers or people who are trapped in situations with abusive partners or in abusive environments, you always want to let them know that they can come to you and that you will believe them 
a lot of people who want people to feel trapped will convince them that if they tell the story about what's really happening, the people on the outside won't believe their story. So it's very important that you say to people, I will believe you. You might not actually believe all the stories at first because some of them can seem pretty extreme and you didn't know those things could happen. But please say it and please be open to it. Because if someone finally has the courage to come to you to talk about what's happened and you say, that sounds impossible or really no one can get away with that. And mm, I don't know if that's so bad or if that could really happen there, then they will shut down further and then have this feeling that their trauma just continues, that they're still trapped even when they're on the outside. So giving people a place to come to, no questions asked, again, unless they want the questions to be asked, is a very, very important thing to do. And then they have a chance to feel hopeful. They have a chance to have a sense of faith that things can get better. And they have a sense that all human beings need, that they have the option of freedom. Freedom is integral to our lives in so many ways. And that is why the Constitution, and in other countries, there are other rules and laws, some to a lesser degree than in the United States, some to a greater degree than in the United States, will protect those freedoms. And it's so important, not only for emotional self-esteem, but for a feeling of physical safety. So I think if you are able to be that person who says, I'm going to offer you a chance, then you're going to be able to calm that person down just by knowing that there is a light at the end of that tunnel. You be the person who opens the door, opens the window, gives people a path out, you will be giving them such a gift, a gift beyond measure. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you, too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.